I'm particularly burdened this Lord's Day um, with a number of things that have gone on in our world and how those affect our experience of gathering together and thinking about the Lord and His gospel and what we believe about right and wrong and peace and justice. And I'm speaking, of course, uh, partly of what's going on in Minneapolis that has overflowed to many other cities. And I wanted to read to you a prayer from a pastor that I revere and admire who's served in Minneapolis as a pastor for 44 years in the inner city. So uh, just blocks from where... Uh, Mr. Floyd died. Here's the prayer. I hope you'll bear with this. Almighty and merciful Father, hallowed be your name in Minneapolis, revered, admired, honored above every name, in church, in politics, in sports, in music, in theater, in business, in media, in heaven, or in hell. May your name, your absolute reality, be the greatest treasure of our lives. And may your eternal divine Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, crucified for sin, risen from the dead, reigning forever, be known and loved as the greatest person in this city. It was no compliment to the city of Nineveh, but it was a great mercy when you said to your sulking prophet Jonah, Should I not pity Nineveh? that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? Oh, how kind you are to pity our folly rather than pander to our pride. Jonah could not fathom your mercy. His desire was the fire of judgment. And you stunned him and angered him with the shock of forgiveness. And have we not heard your son crying out to the city that would kill him? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? Oh, how large is your heart towards cities and their sin and misery? Yes, we have heard you speak mercy to great cities. Did you not say to Jerusalem, this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth? And they were not worthy, not any more than Nineveh or Minneapolis. But you are a merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And what are we? Debtors whose hope, only hope, is grace. For we could never pay back the honor we have stolen from your name. How precious then is the lightning bolt of truth that Christ came into the world to save sinners. And for what have you saved us, Father? To what end do you forgive and cleanse and free and empower your people? You have told us, In the coming ages, I will show the immeasurable riches of my grace and kindness towards you in Christ Jesus. Yes, that is best. You 
are your best gift to us. But that is a long way off, Lord. What about now? For now we live in Minneapolis, not in heaven. This is our home away from home. We love our city. We love her winters. Yes, we do. And cherish her spring. We love her great river and her parks, her stadiums and her teams. We love her lakes and crystal air. We love her beautiful cityscape. We love her tree-lined neighborhoods, her industry, her arts, her restaurants and recycling. And we love her people, the old immigrant Swedes and the new immigrant Somalis, her African-Americans, her Asians, her Latinos. We love those with so many genetic roots that they don't know what box to check. We love her diversity, every human precious, because you made each one like yourself and for glory. This is our home away from home. We are sojourners and exiles in this city. So we ask again, for what have you saved us here and now? Our hearts are open to hear your answer, Lord. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Yes, Lord, yes. This is our heart for Minneapolis. We seek her welfare. We pray for her behalf. For those who knew George Floyd best, who knew George Floyd best and loved him most, bring them your consolation and direct their hearts to the God of all comfort. For Derek, who put his knee on Floyd's neck for seven minutes until he died, we ask for the mercy of repentance and the judgment of justice. For officers Thomas Lane and Tao and Alexander, who stood by, we pray that grief and fear will bring the fruit of righteous remorse And may the seriousness of the killing and the cowardice of the complicity meet with proper penalties. For the upright police who have watched all ten minutes of the unbelievable video of Floyd's dying, who consider it horrific and inhumane, who find it unbelievable that Derek did not say a single word for seven minutes as the man under his knee pled for his life, and who lament with dashed hopes that they must start again from square one to rebuild what meager trust they hope to have won. For these worthy servants of your city, we pray that they would know the patient endurance of Jesus Christ, who suffered for deeds he did not do. May our leaders love the truth, seek the truth, stand firm, unclenching for the truth and act on the truth. Let nothing, O Lord, be slept under the rug. Forbid that any power or privilege would be allowed to twist or distort or conceal the truth. Even if the truth brings the privilege, the rich, the powerful, the poor, from the darkness of wrong into the light of right. For the haters... And the bitter and hostile slanderers from every race, we pray that they will see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. We pray that the light will banish the darkness from their souls. The darkness of arrogance and racism and selfishness. We pray for broken hearts because a broken and contrite 
Lord, heart, O oh Lord, you will not despise. We pray that our city will see miracles of reconciliation and lasting harmony rooted in truth and in paths of righteousness. We pray for peace, the fullest enjoyment of shalom flowing down from God, the God of peace and bought at an infinite price for the brokenhearted followers of the Prince of Peace. And as the scourge of COVID-19 has now killed 100,000 people in our nation and still kills 20 people a day in our state, most of them in our city, and as the virus wrecks havoc on our economy and riots send lifetimes of labor up in smoke and the fabric of our common life is torn, we pray that the compounding sorrows will not compound our sins but send us desperate and running to the risen Savior, our only hope, Jesus Christ. O Jesus, for this you died, that you might reconcile hopeless, hostile people to God and to each other. You have done it for millions by grace through faith. Do it, Lord Jesus, in Minneapolis, we pray. Amen. Father, we pray that we would be a broken people, and that as we read your word and seek to understand what you have to say about your son, that it would transform us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 18, that's the passage that we'll be examining today, but I will actually read 9 verses 11 through 14 and then 10, 11 through 18. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now let's go to chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had entered for all time, had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified." And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. For there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. He who has an ear to hear, 
let him hear. The reason I read chapter 9, verses 11 through 14 is I believe that is the, uh, the heart of the main section of Hebrews. And it's the place where he clarifies exactly why he's been talking about Jesus being the high priest and what that means for us. And since that section, in every sermon that we've dealt with the passages following that, I believe the author's been giving us implications or answering questions about those verses. Today, the verses we've just read, chapter 10, verses 11 through 18, I think are the climax or the crescendo of the implications of this whole section dealing with Christ as our high priest. So this is one final punch, if you will. One final uh, exertion of the beautiful and stunning things about the work and the person of Jesus Christ himself. After this passage, beginning in verse 19, the majority of the rest of the book is implication, or, or the therefores, if you will. So basically, he makes a transition. On the basis of all that we've said, all that we've seen regarding Christ and his sacrifice and his work, now let's talk about what that means for you and me at length. So it will do us a a lot of good, I think, to remember what the main thrust of the book has been up to this point and why we got into this whole discussion of the first covenant versus the second covenant in the first place. The whole letter... If you'll remember, if you can pull all those things back up in your mind, the whole letter is couched in a pastoral concern for his people to hold fast, to persevere to the end. Back in Hebrews 3, verses 6 and 12 through 14, here's what he says. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So what's this idea of confidence and boasting? Many of you, I hope, have had the pleasure of watching some really good sports movie. Okay, And usually what happens is at the end of this sports flick, you have one team that's down and you, they're the good guys, the other team's the bad guys, and you're not really sure why except the other guys are just mean. And so you want your team to win and the, the director makes you buy in and love that team. And they're down and it's not going well. And then finally the coach brings them over to the sideline or at halftime and gives them a real exciting speech. Okay, And somehow that transforms everybody and they go out and they win, right? And then we're all happy and it's a great experience. So this, this is a common theme even in human experience. So we, we begin with concern, like, hey, things aren't going really well. The score shows that we're down this many touchdowns, if you will. It's a bad deal. They're stronger than us. They're tougher than us, maybe. They paid off the refs, whatever it is. But think about this. That all that stuff is bad. All, all of that is, is concerning. Here's what's going on. But consider this. We have this going for us. We love each other. And if we fight together, we've done this before, we can overcome. So now let's go out there and win. And it's not just in silly examples either. If you listen to the speeches of FDR... And Winston Churchill before D-Day, it's the same pattern. Concern, 
Consider, conquer. Here's the concern. If we don't win, if, we, if things continue as they are, it would mean nothing less than the loss of Western civilization. But consider this. How you cherish your families and your nations. Now go out and conquer. That is what Hebrews is doing. The whole book. Let us look at the concern. See what's really going on in the world and what's going on in our hearts. Consider Christ and then let us hold fast to that confidence and conquer. So there's this idea of boasting that runs through the entire book, even though he only mentions the word once, but he uses the idea of confidence or boasting. So this text, I believe, verses 11 through 18, what we're considering today, is the most bold and underscored reflections on this idea of consider. Think about these things. Look at them. Long. Cherish them. Consider them. The author is very loud and proud, boasting in Jesus Christ. And he wants you to have that same feeling and confidence. What does this look like and sound like? We're going to eventually get to chapter 11, where we see that all of the people of God, through the history of God's revelation of himself, they conquered or achieved great feats of strength or faith or whatever it is through, through dependence on the Lord. Their confidence was in the Lord, and through that, they overcame. And then he gets to chapter 12 and says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him! who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So, before we get to the therefores, here, here is how we conquer. He wants us to consider one more thing. And this is like, a, if you've ever been to a long and very well-done fireworks show, you know you, you're waiting until the very end. They're doing one or maybe two or three at a time for like an hour. And then finally at the end, you've got five minutes of the finale. This is the finale. And I'll split it into two sections. The first part, part one, I will call the epic of Christ. Let's look at it. Verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. All the best stories encompass all of history. If you think of any of your favorite stories, like maybe the Lord of the Rings or the Chronicles of Narnia and many other books and stories that that we treasure as a culture, what makes them so appealing, what makes them epic in the truest sense of that is that they look all the way back to the beginning of things and look all the way forward to the end of things. They encompass all of history. 
And really, all religions try to answer this question. What is the right story? Or what story is the right one? In philosophy, this is called the meta-narrative. I'm going to give you a big word. You can stun all your friends if you want to have that. It's fun to have big words in your back pocket. Meta-narrative. Okay? And all that means is that it is the big story... The one story that makes sense of all other smaller stories. Okay? So all religions are trying to answer that question. What is the one story? What is the meta narrative? And the tactics of the enemy nowadays, just as a side note, are that he doesn't any longer really say, oh, here are 15 different false stories. He says, there isn't one. So the lie is there is no meta-narrative. That is that your life is what you make it. What's true for you? What's meaningful for you? Follow your heart, which is why I bash on Disney all the time. Just as long as you don't hurt anybody, whatever story, whatever meaning you want to bring to your life, that's your story. There is no real meta-narrative. We all have our own stories, and we love them, and we live them out. Just don't hurt anybody. It's okay. So the problem is, if that's true, there's no such thing as right or wrong, and life has no meaning, and you'll end up in nihilism. We don't have time to explain that. But these three verses, in a nutshell, I believe, give us the scope, the full scope of the Bible's story, the meta narrative, if you will. And here's the thing. It's very easy to give bad answers. If someone were to ask you, hey, what is the Bible's full story? What is, what, if, if you were to summarize what the main story scope is of the Bible, there are many bad ways to answer that question. Here are some that are common. Well, you can group the whole story into creation, fall, redemption, and eternal state. Right? God created the world, man sinned, so we fell, God redeemed man, and then eternal state. Or it's God's love story, or God's love letter, or even the plan of salvation, or the history of redemption. Or even, if you were to say, it's God's self-revelation. Each of those misses the point, and is at least one step removed from the real answer, the heartbeat of it all. And it's at least not specific enough. Here it is, the the clear, wide-reaching, extremely specific Plan, the story that makes sense of all stories is the glory of God in the exaltation of Jesus Christ as Lord through his redeeming work. We can see this in the text. We see that, the, as I've called it in the previous weeks, the dark and sharp shadow of the law prepared the stage for the coming of Jesus. We'll go through these quickly since we've discussed them in previous sermons leading up to this, but look at the text. There are several things that the law sets the stage for, and it primarily sets the stage for and sets the expectation for the coming of Jesus in its inadequacy. Here are A couple of ways. The law sets the stage for Christ in the plurality of the priests. He says every priest 
stands. What's the problem with that? The problem is that they were prevented by death, as he says in chapter 7, verse 23. They were prevented by death from continuing in office. The only reason there are multiple priests is because they died. So they're not perfect. And after they died, they didn't raise from the dead like Jesus. They have to keep replacing each other. So the fact that there are multiple priests shows that there is need for one final priest to come. It's also not complete. He says each priest stands daily at his service. Standing indicates that your job's not finished. There's something more to do. It points in, and, and a, a priest would never sit in the Holy of Holies. Go in, sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant and leave. There's no irreverence, no sitting, no, no nothing. Go in, do that, leave. Every priest stands. So it points to a need and explains the significance of Jesus being seated at the right hand of God. The dark, sharp shadow of the law also gives this idea that it is fragile in the sense of needing to be continually maintained. It says each priest stands daily at his service. So every day you got to go back in. You offer repeatedly the same sacrifices. If it worked at all, you wouldn't need to do it again. That's the point. It points to our need for one to come to offer a once-for-all sacrifice that's done, that doesn't need to be done over and over. And lastly, this, this dark, sharp shadow of the law shows us that it is not effective. The same sacrifices which can never take away sins. It's the obvious problem, and it's the worst problem. If it were not the case, then the law would have continued. Paul says in Galatians 2.21, For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If those sacrifices could have ever taken away sins, then Jesus didn't need to come. So the fact that they had to be continually offered over and over... And they knew that it wouldn't take away sins, point to the need that someone's got to come, someone's got to offer a sacrifice that's really going to deal with sins. And here's the point. The law itself only has legitimacy, even in that time, as a temporary covenant and solution because, precisely because, its purpose was to point forward to the coming of Christ. It set the stage in this epic, in this story that God is unfolding. The entire law is preparing the stage. And the stage having thus been set, Christ appears and fulfills and outstrips Everything having to do with the law. It's also important to say that this idea of outstripping, it's not just that he appeared and worked within the confines of the law. He appeared and exceeded all the expectations that were there in the law, even of those who were listening carefully. As far as I can tell, there are only four people mentioned in the New Testament who really understood that Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, would have to die. That's John the Baptist, Anna, Simeon, and Mary Magdalene. Four people that we know of 
had a sense, even if it was very limited, a sense at all that he would have to die. This is why his disciples scattered. It's just good storytelling. And I want you to marvel at God's unfolding of his plan and his epic that he is writing. That it's not just that Jesus shows up and fix what was wrong with the law. He comes and fulfills and completely outstrips the law. He is the master artist. He modifies, exceeds and modifies our expectations. And he does so perfectly. He is one priest. You see it in the text. But when Christ, not every priest, not a long line of priests, but Christ, just Christ, appears. Christ must and will forever stand between you and God. And that is good because he is God himself. He will never die again. He needs no successor. And it is not fragile. The old covenant, the dark, sharp shadow of the law was fragile. He offered once for all time. It reaches backwards and forwards for all time. There's no other offering to God that is really and fully acceptable to him on its own merits. The integrity of that offering is so strong, time is is basically irrelevant to it. It is a brute fact. More essential than the foundations of the earth, the laws of physics, space-time, and energy, even heaven itself. The very dwelling place of God and all his angels bow to, and it centers around that offering, the lamb slain. So hold in your mind and heart the gravity of that one event, that it is a once-for-all-time thing and all other things are basically irrelevant to it. That's why it can reach backwards and forwards and time doesn't matter and it's, it's more essential than anything else in all existence. Hold that in your mind and heart. We'll come back to that. It is also effective. Christ's ministry, how Christ came and fulfilled these expectations in this epic of Christ. It is effective. A single sacrifice for sins. Once it is done, the altar is closed. There is no other offering for sin because the offering or sacrifice of Jesus actually and permanently dealt with sins. It's not Jesus and your life as an offering to pay off your sins. That's modern legalism. It's not Jesus and Old Testament sacrifices, right? Judaizers and, and old legalism. And it's not Jesus and positive self-esteem or feeling good about yourself in order to deal with sins. He is the single sacrifice for sins. He actually did away with them. And it is also complete. He sat down at the right hand of God in the Holy of Holies. The significance of his being seated. Don't let that be lost on you. It's done There's nothing else he has to do to maintain his right to stand in that place for you and plead your case before the Father forever. Homeownership is difficult. 
We just refinanced. There are all these steps you got to go through. And once you think you're done, you're not done. And there are 15 other things you got to turn in. And then even after you buy your house and you're in your house, if you don't pay your taxes, your government, the government comes and takes your house away. If you don't pay your payments, you can lose your house. you got to maintain insurance. So you got to keep doing things every single year and making sure it all stays intact just so you can stay in your home. But Christ is seated. The battle is fought and the victory won. It's over. And now we come to verse 13. It's a fascinating passage. I really want you to see this. This this is why this passage gave me trouble. I had trouble with this whole section because of verse 13. I want you to notice a few things about it. This is why I've couched this whole message in in the the structure of of the epic of Christ. This this unveiling of God's plan because of verse 13. I want you to see something. I'm going to read the text and I'll leave out verse 13. Notice something. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being saved. Leaving verse 13 out, you almost lose nothing. In terms of the flow of of what it means for Christ to be our high priest and what he's doing in heaven. So why did the author include it? Is he just throwing it in to be pretty? It actually signals what the author is doing, I think. And why it shows us the magnitude of our boasting in Christ. He shows us how far-reaching our confidence can be. That we need to have... In order to hold fast. See, because that's what he's going to get to in verses 19 and onward. Hold fast. Because this is true about Christ. Because of all that he's done and the magnitude of this story. Hold fast. Don't lose your confidence. So verse 13 gives us the scope of how great and grand and far-reaching that confidence can be. It's a quotation of Psalm 2, actually. Verse 13. Remember the first time we saw the author of Hebrews quote Psalm 2? It's all the way back in chapter 1. Some of you weren't even here. And he says, To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So quoting that again shows that this is finishing out this entire point of the book of how great and awesome is our Savior Christ, the one who, through whom God has spoke finally. This is why I said with more confidence than I have in anything, That the main story that makes sense of all other stories and the real meaning of all heavenly and human history is the glory of God in the exaltation of Jesus Christ as Lord over all things, even his enemies, through his redeeming work. Salvation, this is the point, and this might rub you the wrong way, I'm sorry, but this is significant. Salvation is not the end goal. It's not the main point. 
Jesus is the main point. Jesus' saving work, his redeeming work in obedience to the Father is the basis on which God declares to all existence that this one is the exalted one. And just how marvelous and majestic he is in the person of Jesus Christ. Because he has overcome for his people. We should be stunned. This is the plan for all time. To glorify God in the exaltation of Jesus Christ. On the basis of him being our savior. That, my friends, is why he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And hopefully you have just sensed a little bit of the gravity of this story, this meta-narrative that we are being invited into, the epic of Christ, and you can echo with Paul, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given to him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. He says, waiting for that time. He's speaking about the end of all things. And it's in a Christ-centered structure. Think about it. Waiting for that time, the end of all things, the end of the world, is specifically for Christ. Think about that. It is for Christ because all his enemies must be made a footstool for his feet. He deserves that. He is one. The victory is his. The right is his. So all things must come to an end because he deserves all of his worshipers and brothers and sisters to come in and serve with him and all of his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet. This is the epic of Christ. We are already at the end of ages. And the day of the Lord will come because Jesus will have all his enemies subjected to him. And it must happen because of his own rights. And the only thing holding off this great and awesome day of the Lord is God's mercy and patience. That's it. And, mystery of mysteries, we're supposed to hasten his coming. But that's for another time. So when we see all that's going on in our world, the unrest, the anger, racism, and unjust killings, and abortion, and disease, and corruption, and then the horror of horrors when you peer into your own heart and see the darkness and sin and shame that's still there. The Christian, the biblical response, while we should still pray for and work for justice, And peace is to say, repent, for the day of the Lord is at hand. The day of judgment is swiftly arriving because Christ will have all his enemies made into a footstool for his feet. He will triumph over all of them. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The Lord has a day of reckoning that will come. And I know it can sound like being a crazy person to even say this to the unbelieving world, but the gospel is meaningless without it. 
And let's think about this, uh, this enemies and footstool business. I, I thought Jesus, I thought, I thought his sacrifice put away all sin. I thought, it, I thought it dealt with sin. How can he have an enemy? Is he talking out of both sides of his mouth? Here is where you and I come in. And we have to get really honest and personal. And to the nitty-gritty of our hearts and answer this hard question. Is this, Jesus, your hope and confidence and boast from now into eternity? Or is Jesus a means to an end for you? Well, I don't want hell if it so happens to exist. And if it does, Jesus seems to be the guy who can really help me with that and get out of it. So I'll believe in him just in case it turns out to be real. Is that hope, confidence, and trust in the risen Son of God who's seated at the right hand of the throne of God, waiting until that time until his enemies are made into a footstool for his feet? No. Now, I want you to ask and wonder, how does this this epic of Christ, this amazing unfolding of history that God established all creation to, to end in the exaltation of his son as Lord over all on the basis of his saving work, how do I come into that? How does this apply to me? How does this come to apply to individuals? How can I be a part of this epic of Christ? In this, we see how it can be true that Jesus dealt with sin and still has enemies. Verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is the second part, the people of Christ, the epic of Christ and the people of Christ. This is where it gets really personal This massive, once-for-all-time, brute fact, unchangeable historical event of Christ's death being the single and final offering for sin that gave him the right to be seated at the right hand of power, ruling over all existence, is not just some isolated event in the past. It's not just something that you believe in cognitively with nothing other than our minds. Think about this. The wheel was invented, right? I mean, wheels exist, so at some point they were existed. But do we know who, who invented it? No. It's probably one of the most significant inventions that has happened in all of human history, but we don't really care or know who invented it. We have no connection or dependency on that. It happened, and we believe it happened, but... In our daily lives, we use its effects, but it doesn't really matter to us who did it. Is the cross of Christ that way? We believe it happened. What does it have to do with you today? You may live in its benefits, but what is your connection with the person who accomplished it? All of this can be really applied to you, and all of it can come to you, reaching forward from the past and backward from the future into your life in this Verse, by that offering, by a single offering, that massive once-for-all-time offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. These are the people of Christ. These and these alone are the ones who are not going to be made into a footstool for his feet. And there is no in-between 
This is the stunning claim of the Bible. Either you are perfected for all time through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and are being sanctified, or you are an enemy of Christ. That's it. That's all that the Bible gives us. There's no alternative to those categories. And the reason there's no other option, it's not just like God's trying to be narrow, right? It's not just like, well, let's set this up, let's make it really narrow, and people will have to deal with it. This is the reason the world exists. The reason he created the world in the first place was for the exaltation of his son. So if you reject that, if you don't want to have anything to do with Christ, you're rejecting the reason for existence. If you don't care about that, if you're repulsed by that idea, or really don't know anything about that, just give me my hell insurance policy and we're good, Jesus. Then you've rebelled against God's reason for creating to the world in the same degree and same flavor as Lucifer's rebellion. To say, I reject God's reason for creating me is essentially saying the same thing as I will ascend to the Most High. I will define my life like I want to define it. I'll do my own thing. So what does this mean? What does this verse mean? I could spend a lot of time talking about this verse. Now that I've preached it in its full context, you'll hear me refer to it a lot. It is nothing less than the most precious promises of the gospel. Jesus offering himself on the cross is such a perfect and once for all time sacrifice and its finality is so sure and resolved and beyond question and Jesus' own righteous life and death being offered for sin is so sufficient and impossible to overturn that if you are in Christ, God's estimation of you now, today, is perfect. That is mind-boggling and breathtaking and stunning. The Greek here is interesting because the tense is the perfect tense, meaning it's complete and essentially it means it's always going to be the case. It's done. It's over. It will always be the case that you are perfect. If you're in Christ, if he is your Savior, you are perfect in his sight. You don't fall in and out of perfection in this sense. If you are in Christ. So does this mean we don't need to change? Far from it. And here is where the beauty and the glory of this text is found. It carries this already not yet flavor. He has perfected once for all time those who are being sanctified. That's amazing. The evidence we can look at in ourselves... And to a degree, in others, in this, those who are perfected all time are the ones who are actually, in real time, day by day, being sanctified. And this is why holiness matters so much. And why we have such a thing as a church covenant to be part of this church. If you're living a life that you know deep down, That is nothing like being made holy. And you have no reason to believe you have been perfected for all time in the cross of Christ. 
And there's grace and mercy encouragement in this text. We should not let ourselves off the hook, but mainly to encourage grace towards others and to silence the enemy. Being sanctified is a process. The, the idea or image to have both these ideas of already perfected and being sanctified is the idea of a boat being moored to a dock. So the, the lines have already been attached. It's already secure, but it's being drawn in closer and closer to that pier so that it will one day be finally lashed completely tight to that. That's the reality we sit in as Christians, already secure, already perfected in Christ, but being drawn closer and closer to actually live out that perfection. It's a process, and it's slow, and it's even painfully slow at times. But here's the point. Slow and steady progress is far better, far better than spurts of zeal and rigor followed by seasons of failure and regret. And it's infinitely better than having no blind spots, as far as you can tell, and thinking you're the most perfect person you know. We should all have a view of ourselves that we are the very least of all the saints. Verse 15, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. This is the biblical proof for what he's just said in verse 14. We could say, oh, that's great, author of Hebrews. How is it that you can just say, are you just making this up on your own, that Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified? Where do you get that? Where is that rooted? What's going on here? We won't revisit every line of these verses because we covered it in chapter 8. He's reciting it again. It's rooted in the essence of the second covenant, this amazing claim that Christ's sacrifice can perfect you for all time and continue in your life to sanctify you. Look at it. I will write my laws on their heart and write them on their minds and I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So this is Massively helpful for you to be honest with yourself, to know if you're truly saved and really in Christ. Imperfect, it will always be imperfect until we finally reach home, but obedience from the heart because of a change made there by God. The Bible speaks of being born again, having a new heart, a removal of the heart of stone and regeneration. And there's encouragement for here, here for those who are discouraged. The more that you live this life that Christ gives to us, the more heartbroken you'll be over your own sin. So the message of hope here to the discouraged is this. Those who are really born again, and because God's law is written on our hearts and minds, it grieves us a whole lot when we still struggle with sin. The message of hope is not, well, no one is perfect. God accepts you as you are. That's not the new covenant. It is nothing less, as stunning as this sounds, 
you are already made perfect in Christ. God fully accepts you because of him. That's the gospel. He remembers your sins no more. There's nothing standing between you and him because he doesn't hold them against you. The only one whose opinion and view of you matters in the ultimate sense does not remember, does not call to mind at all or think of your sins if you are in Christ. Verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sins. The meaning and significance of this verse will echo into eternity. In Christ is the only place you get forgiveness. If you don't have forgiveness of sins, then you are an enemy of Christ and will suffer justly for your own sins. But if Christ is your hope and trust, if he is your confidence and boast, then you have forgiveness. God remembers your sins no more. And there is no longer any offering for sin. There is nothing else other than the application of Christ's death on the cross for your sins to gain forgiveness. It is not just, I remember what you did, but I'm not going to hold it against you. It is not just, well, I'm going to clean you up even though you have a bad track record. It is the proclamation of innocent. You're absolved in Christ of all sin. The application for yourself is to ask yourself these hard questions. Is he really your hope and trust and your confidence and your boast? And are you listening to the enemy who would remind you of your sins and you believe that God still views you with respect to your sins and you're not viewing your sin in light of the cross of Christ knowing that God remembers your sins no more? And is it, this is another test, Do you love what God has done in you through Christ enough to desire to live more holy? You can't claim to be have, you cannot claim to have been perfected in Christ if you do not desire to be sanctified. The application as we think about our relationship to others, our spouses, in parenting, in friends, towards our enemies is if this person is in Christ and God remembers their sins no more, what gives you the right to remember them? This reconciles relationships not because we're given a good feeling towards another person because, but because we have no leg to stand on to hold anything against anyone. Yes, sin can cause Great problems in relationships and things need to be rebuilt over time. But you have no right to hold sin against someone if God has forgiven them. This has application for the church and missions. We have the message of forgiveness. The only way that Sins will be removed from people and people stand a chance to be perfected in Christ is the message of Christ's death on the cross. Otherwise, they will be made into a footstool for his feet. 
and the day of reckoning will not go well for them. So it should motivate us that we have the message of life and of forgiveness. And as we look into this cursed, dead world, while we want our leaders to make good decisions, while we want there to be progress and a trajectory towards peace, all this is going to eventually end. The day of the Lord will come. Flee to the rock of refuge. Let's pray. Father, we are eager to live consistently with the gospel. I pray for those who may have heard it clearly for the first time today, that today would be the day of salvation, that they would speak with me after the service or someone else that they trust and commit themselves to the Lord for the first time. And for those who have been Christians a long time, may we reawaken to the confidence that we have in you and to the boasting that we have in you in this grand unfolding of your plan in the person of Jesus Christ. May we be stunned by its glory. Keep us in that place as we set our minds on things above. In Jesus' name, amen.